Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Kate Tempest and producer Dan Carey to talk about how they recorded and produced the album The Book of Traps and Lessons. Kate Tempest is a spoken word artist, rapper, poet, playwright and novelist from South East London. At the age of 16, Kate gained a place at the Brit School and shortly after made her live debut in the London record shop Deal Reel under the name Eccentral Tempest. She went on to tour internationally with her band Sound of Rum, supporting artists such as Billy Bragg and the King Blues. The group released one album, but disbanded in 2012. After meeting at one of her gigs, Kate began working with producer Dan Carey. The collaboration quickly flourished, and they began to work on an album, resulting in Kate's Mercury-nominated debut, Everybody Down, released on the Big Dada label. Her second album, Let Them Eat Chaos, also produced by Dan, was released two years later on Fiction Records, and earned Kate her second Mercury Prize nomination, as well as a Brit Award nomination for Best British Female Solo Artist. Kate and Dan's collaboration has continued with the release of her third studio album, The Book of Traps and Lessons, this time heading out to the US in order to work alongside legendary producer Rick Rubin. Dan Carey is a London-based producer, multi-instrumentalist, writer and mixer who has worked with an astonishing range of artists from the likes of Sia, Kylie Minogue and Christine Aguilera to The Kills, Franz Ferdinand and Block Party to name a few. Dan was first introduced to the world of music as a child through his uncle who was a composer. He went on to start his first record label with a friend to facilitate releasing their own music which eventually led to him signing a deal for a time as a producer with Virgin Records. In 2014, Dan received two Mercury nominations in the same year one for Kate's album, Everybody Down, and the other for Nick Mulvey's debut, First Mind. Dan also regularly works with up-and-coming artists on his own label, Speedy Wonderground, and has most recently produced the Mercury-nominated debut by Black Midi. Today, I'm here at Mr. Dan's studio with Kate and Dan to talk about how the Book of Traps and Lessons was recorded and produced, and what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. My visionary a vision. I watch her dancing by the window and it rips my flesh to ribbons. And the whole world is just ripples in the middle distance. I listen to her hips. I push my kisses to her lips. We move like we were born to move. The night is teeth and pistons. And there is something in this tenderness that makes me want to live. Fire smoke. Her mouth sets free this captive. It is Fire Smoke from the Book of Traps and Lessons. And I'm very pleased to say that sat with me are the two people who created that, Dan Carey and Kate Tempest. Hello. 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 Dan, thank you very much for welcoming Tape Notes back into your lair. So we're here once more in Streatham, in um, the studio that has played such a pivotal role in the relationship between the two of you, I 
would think because in many ways uh, Kate you're one of these people who has told me about Dan's studio yeah. over many years and because of that I've always built up this this picture in my head of what it was like and I always imagined it was in a basement for some reason um, but there have been a few people who told me about it but yeah. um, your story's always really stuck in my head particularly because um, in the early days you would get the bus from Lewisham Catford yeah. and come over to Streatham and I remember you saying how you'd look out the bus window and look at the people around uh, walking, living their lives, and, and that kind of inspired you in many ways. Um, when did you meet Dan? And when you did, what did you think you would do together? <laughs> it is a bit like a basement because there isn't much light. So maybe that when people describe it to you, probably they, you get the feeling Dark. of yeah. The, yeah, the darkness. So maybe that's why. <laughs> Yeah, although the lights are switched on. But I think there are all these tales of turning off all the lights and smoke yeah, machines yeah, yeah. And, and this kind of stuff. <laughs> Strobes, you know, to get you in the zone. Definitely. Basement that's, activity. That's it. Um, when, when did we meet, Dan? Robbie introduced us, didn't he? At that, the Sound of Rum gig? Uh, yeah, was that at it? the Paradise Bar. Yeah. yeah. So I was in a band called Sound of Rum and we put a record out on Rob the Bank's label, Sunday Best, and he knew Dan well and... Um, invited Dan to come and watch us. We were doing this gig at, in this pub, and as I remember it, there wasn't anybody in the audience apart from Dan. <laughs> there might have been more people there, but I just remember there just being Dan and his kind of intense focus and concentration, like was like almost a bit rattling. Who is this guy? Like I was I, from the minute that I became aware that, that you were there, your attention was like. I remember your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So a different kind of intensity from Kate on stage and the, the concentration in that performance and your concentration listening to her performance. Yeah. So you met that night and then was it suggested that you should work together or you know, it had Rob brought Dan down for a purpose? I think you were just yeah. there, weren't you? Just no, no, no. Like... Rob, Rob, Robbie had said, come to see you and then we we did a few tracks for the album together for the sound of rum album yeah right yeah I, the- I remember like we met we met dan and we heard about him and what what he did and i remember being so desperate to get in this studio like the first time i saw this studio i'd never seen anything like it like it, there were all the guitars on the walls and it was a real studio <laughs> it was that, like actually with the desk in it and stuff and I remember driving here with Archie, the guitarist from my band, and it was like snowing and the car was skidding all over the road. So we had to just leave it. We had to just ditch the car and we just walked the rest of the way, like through the snow and ice. It was like crazy. I don't how I don't even know how it had been snowing so much, but it just had been. And then by the time we got here, <laughs> I've been on this epic mission and we just knocked on the door to be like, Dan, here's, here's our demo. <laughs> as if it was as if we were just... Just passing through. I remember you were in here with um, Coco. Yeah. And she yeah. was like singing and I was like, wow, there's a real artist in the studio. But I knocked on the door <laughs> and then suddenly I was like, right, how do I make this appear like it's not completely insane that we've just had me and Archie like covered in snow. Like, we just bought our demo. <laughs> can, we, can we come and record with you? So it took quite a long time, but then we did manage to get in and Dan mixed a couple of our songs. And, and then, then it was this kind of similar thing after Sound of Rum, I remember you just turned up same door. Mm-hmm. Just like, do you want to make a tune with me? <laughs> <laughs> right, because we should explain. Sound of Rum was three people. Yeah. Guitar, drums, and yeah. you. 
Fairy Lawrence sang on the drums, Archie Marsh on the guitar, and he played everything, the bass as well, and then I was rapping. Mm. And so when that, did that reach its, it run its course, and then you came and knocked on Dan's door? Yeah, we were, we were like gigging like crazy, but it was, it was hard. Everyone was working full time, you know, day jobs. And I had plays to write and stuff like this. And it was just, yeah, I suppose you could say it ran its course. Or I, I became aware that I wanted to do new things. So we, we wound it down. And um, I started thinking about how to get some music to rap on. Mm, right. So you were looking for music to rap on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but not necessarily going to a hip-hop producer or a known hip-hop producer per se. I'm sure you can produce and have produced much hip-hop, Dan. But, um, but it, it's interesting because you turned to Dan because you thought he might have a like-minded approach to, to what you were doing or that you knew that you had some rapport already? Yeah, um, like every time I'd been in this studio or every time we'd had a conversation about music, I'd felt there was a, a kind of kindred fascination, certain things we had in common. or And also he was, because of the way that music exists in my life, it's always been the thing that I make with people I know. And then so with Dan, it like I, I felt like he was somebody that I knew, you know. It didn't, but also he was in. He actually made music, like <laughs> you know, he like, and uh, it feels a bit audacious now to think about like just turning up and being like, "Can we make a song?" Yeah, and not even like it. It could have been an email. <coughs> it could have been a phone call. But I love the idea that you came and knocked on the door. I think yeah. it's the only way. Like, if it had been an email, it never would have happened. Mm. Like, if it yeah, because had... it would have been easy to be like, yeah, yeah maybe next week or maybe the week after next. Or, but yeah. I was just free. We just went. We went over there, didn't we? And we did bunch, lonely yeah. days. What? So you went out? What for a coffee or a drink or, or something? No, I've got another no. studio um, down the road. So you went to a different space, but not very far away. Yeah. And we wrote. We wrote lonely days. That day, we just recorded a yeah, version of it. Just did it. But there was no character names. It wasn't Pete and Becky yet. It was just him and her. And then it went... And, and was this a piece of writing that you hadn't worked on at all? You just came up with those words then and there, or was it... Yeah, yeah. Or, well, yeah. That's the way that we work, really, is that we just get together and it seems to be the case that when we are together, we can both do things that we wouldn't have been able to do when we were apart. Mm. So when I'm in the studio with Dan, suddenly I'm capable of like supernatural feats of... Imagination, but when she... <laughs> when I'm not with him, it's much harder <laughs> to come up with anything. I mean, Kate can write a whole lyric in the time it takes me to sort of figure out three chords or plug in a microphone. But similarly, <laughs> when she's there, I feel um, much more in command of just everything. <laughs> everything seems to sound really cool as soon as it's like tiddle any knobs it's like yeah sick (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing um so clearly you inspire each other in in an almost unspoken way Mm. um and react to each other but um it it sounds like with lonely days there was a little discussion about what are we going to do or what is this story going to be or are we going to do a story and then that led to something because i know that dan you often like to get people into the room or a room and fiddle about in a way, you know, improvise, jam, whatever phrase you want to use. Mm. <clears throat> and often you'll use that as a way of exploring the chemistry between you, the personalities involved, the approach of that individual, of that artist, and how they 
they work. Um, and you kind of did that. Well, yeah, I, I think we with Lonely Days, it was maybe a bit more direct. I mean, I seem to remember, you know, going into the room and just playing ding, 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 ding. And just like, that's a cool rhythm. And then we just put some stuff and then started quite quickly. But I think the next session we did was slightly different and kind of and really important in that we we came here and I'd just got the Swarmatron and we did it one night, didn't we? We came in here quite late in the evening. Yeah. And just as a an experiment to see how far we could push this one idea, we hooked up two drum machines and the Swarmatron, which is this strange synth, and a microphone and recorded for about 90 minutes. And I remember I was just, I let the drum machines really run, playing pretty much the same thing the whole time, and then just playing around with the synth. And Kate was freestyling for the whole time, and we we were reacting off each other. I guess I was kind of making different mm. moods on the swarm, and then you were taking the lyric in a different direction according to where that went. I'd make the tone of the swarm differently. And then we took the freestyle lyrics off and then just chopped out the musical bits that we liked. And, you know, that one bit, like, was a, well, we had martial law and happy end, mm. chicken. It was about four or five tracks from the first album that really the, the music is essentially that. And then, obviously, the kind of content of the song came on top. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've got this. Do you, shall I, yeah, shall I think I, we should. Yeah. So what, what we're doing today, we're going to go through one track from each of the three albums that Kate Tempest has put out. Um, but you're explaining, Dan, that when in searching for the stems and the demos of, of these sessions that you came across this mammoth session, mm. a 90-minute uh, non-stop take mm. uh, that you worked on that, in a sense, clearly helped build that first record or half of that first record. Um, which is really amazing. Um, so we're going to have a listen to sections of that. I'm pretty sure the smoke and lasers were going in this se- in that yeah, night. Yeah, yeah, right. the la- well. yeah, yeah. The lasers, the were lasers, going, definitely. They? Yeah, right. We used to have them up there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I was standing. With, I think I had my back to you even. Yeah, you yeah. did because we had the swarm yeah. here, didn't we? And you were, or the swarm. I was there, and you were. <laughs> yeah, it's so insane. Flicked. So. That's the Metasonics drum machine. Then. That's the CR8000. And then... And then that is the Swarmatron. Yeah. That is the Swarmatron. <laughs> <laughs> it's instant hit. atmosphere, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that gives me dread just hearing it. Exactly. So this is a hammer, this is the song that became a hammer. That which speaks your heart before you don't ask nothing but acknowledgement. Every once in a while I leave them speechless like a mute in the monologue. People push piety <laughs> there and me to honour God. Really they have wandered off the path into iniquity. The devil rubs his mix for glee and visualises victory. Men become monsters, mortified by misery. Women they become all begotten figures acting wickedly. Souls all dishevelled by the horrors of our history. We inflict the injury, then we don't want a sympathy. Man, I remain cross 
something in the face of volatility. That's what it's already who seem to have it in for me. So, and is that all made up on the spot? Then, Kate? No, that's, that's, that, that was like a lyric that I just had knocking around probably yeah. at that time. And then the, I'm probably laughing because I like what he's doing. Mm. But by this stage, I mean, you'd come through a few different experiences whereby, you know, you'd done hip hop type slam events where you would make up stuff on the spot uh-huh. and battle people. But you'd been with Sound of Rum. So yeah. that's more constructing songs and reacting to their music and yeah. vice versa. Um, so you're bringing those two schools together in a way. Um, all I those was experiences. Just, like or? desperate to rap at that time. Mm. Just, I just had so much. Just the thing that I loved the most would just be rapping for ages <laughs> like, <laughs> over whatever music I could like possibly encounter. I just got such a buzz off it at that time. It's just all I wanted to do. And I was getting such a buzz off making a beat and have someone rapping on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah, it's well, because you get a real sense, I mean, you know, it sounds corny, but it, you get a sense of New York or something or, or late 70s, you know, when people were doing that, you know, that do, people would just create the music or play breaks and people would just stand around and just talk nonstop yeah. for hour on hour. And when they got bored or lacked an idea, they'd hand the mic to somebody else and they'd carry on. So, yeah. I mean, listening to that, you get a sense of that kind of thing happening, but just with the two of you and without an audience yeah. Uh, or you know, but you're just having fun. Exactly. And reacting yeah. to each other. Yeah. Um. But would you be giving Dan any instructions, like uh, uh, verbal or? No. Uh, he could physical? just. I think that he could probably. I think that when I was into something, the rapping would get better. Mm. And when I wasn't that into something, I'd kind of like start just getting a bit less enthusiastic. Right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, maybe. <laughs> But I mean, uh, most of that track, if like, uh, it's kind of makes my skin crawl to hear it because a lot of it's just going to be absolute nonsense. Mm. Like, you know, like, like uh, Dan, we were talking about it the other day, and um, I had been reading this book of Roald Dahl short stories, like you know these like the kind of tales of the unexpected, which I love, and I'd been reading them that day. I think on the bus on the way here, it's just so brilliantly written this story, and I ended up kind of freestyling a version of this story about a man with a painting on his back who gets kind of maliciously skinned by an art dealer. <laughs> somewhere in this take like there's me just just retelling a Roald Dahl story which I'd completely forgotten about but it was the thing about that is if it, if I hadn't been in the studio with Dan like late at night just mucking around there was absolutely no way I would have felt free enough to just like just do that just talk nonsense for a bit and the, the freedom of me doing that I think gave Dan the freedom to just push the Swarmatron to where, wherever it was it wanted to go and that's what gave our whole album, it's Sonic Identity, really. Like those songs were like the the anchors that the rest mm. of the album takes its cues from. Mm. You know, so I think like as you can hear, it goes into each of those. Like that's martial law. And then it gets. <laughs> and then like as we as I start writing the actual record so we chose the chose the bits the moments that we liked and then I I started to write chapters of prose which I knew would be then condensed into songs and knew that the album would have a kind of a novel that partnered with it right 
and started doing all this character work because the time that passed in between me being in the studio with Dan and me being able to get back in the studio was like big chunks of time because Dan was obviously extremely busy. Mm. So when I, when I came back, I had like, <laughs> like these notebook full of all these chapters and I'd be like, right, chapter one. And then I'd write the lyric, but I knew exactly what was going to happen. So yeah. I knew the setup, you know. I thought that at the beginning, what I was particularly impressed by is how you would you'd make something happen to a character, but you wouldn't have got there yet in the overall narrative. But you, in a way, your brain had already laid it out, and you were just kind of discovering it yeah. because things like the heist was the yeah. second song that we wrote. Yeah, but it was completely abstract about a heist going wrong in a club called Paradise. But and I just remember being with Kate one day, and she was like, "Hang on, hang on, no, no, I know who that." Yeah, I know who that is. And it's, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, of course. And it's kind of like it's already been written in your mind, but you were just putting it together. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I think Lonely Days and The Heist, and maybe there was one other, that after that happened and we decided to link the songs together, that's when I went away. Mm, yeah. And wrote wrote the story, basically. Yeah. When Bri- was Bright this? Eyes. That's when Bright, Bright Eyes was invented. <laughs> Was so was this all in 2013 or was it even earlier than that? That long session, the one that we were talking about, it was the 27th of June 2012, which is exactly seven years before Glastonbury. Mm. Last Smashed week. it. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. But it showed, I mean, because Everybody's Down came out in 2014. Yeah. So, and that's, a, in theory, a long gestation period. But obviously you've got all these different things uh, going on at the same time. So in yeah. effect, you started writing a novel as well as writing... But I think that wasn't even... Album. That wasn't the thing that slowed us down so much. Like, I think that... I think the album was finished in 2013 and it took a year for it to get... For well, us we to couldn't get find anyone to put it out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nobody um, crazy enough to allow... <laughs> it's quite a tough, <laughs> quite a tough pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I think it took us... We spent like a week working really furiously on it I seem to remember but that was I think the longest chunk of time that we actually got to go at it we'd get yeah. maybe a day here or there or I'd get I'd get I'd come in on Dan's downtime or something mm. so it was like I'd be thinking about it in my like real life and then I'd come manage to get a day or two in here and we'd make like pretty fast progress and did you so you went away Kate and started thinking about this did you start thinking about the music side of it, Dan? And say, say if we're going to play Martial Law or look at how you then develop that track, did you then think, right, we both like this when, section? Not, no, not when Kate wasn't there. I mean, I, th- I think I, might, right. I, may have, I may have gone through the that long instrumental and picked out what I thought were the best bits. We, I may have done that in preparation for the next time Kate came back. So I was like, oh, yeah, we've got this, this, that, you know. But, yeah, I tried not to kind of, you know, make beats and mm. sort of show them to Kate afters because it's a very making a beat it's a really really quick thing to do it only takes a couple of minutes um, or at least to come up with the idea of it but it, you know so it may as well, I, I always respond to there's this noise that Kate makes if she likes it it's just really subtle she just goes mm. <laughs> <laughs> and if, I, if I'm if I'm programming something or just playing around to the thing I might just subconsciously I think what I do is I just play and then when I hear mm, I'm just like okay <laughs> latch on to that <laughs> if she's not there I don't know whether yeah you know yeah you wouldn't hear that would you yeah I wouldn't no. hear it so I might make up a I think maybe on on yeah there's a couple of songs aren't there on, on Chaos that like whoops I remember it's like okay I've got this 
pretty weird beat. Yeah. And tunnel vision. That sort of yeah. I remember playing you a few things that when you'd been touring I was thinking of. Yeah. But in the first time round I think yeah, we really kept it very And also I mean the other thing is that that long jam that we had, um didn't really embellish it much. Me you know, I mean they're kind of I mean, should we, should we, do you want to start going through martial well, law? Yeah, yeah, I'm interested to know wh- how you progress that. Because I mean, if, if in that one 90-minute jam session you, you kind of got the body of martial law or got the whole sound of it from that one session, um, then what else did you well, do? I, well, well you I can show you. We wrote that B section. Yeah. Because we wanted to have to these two perspectives. Hmm. So look, here is... Tits out, wet mouth, heads back, shouting and screaming just to prove they exist. Becky's at the bar with the usual mix of decadent fabrics and desolate light. So you can hear what's what's in that is the two original drum machines that there were. You know, in terms of additional stuff, there's a, a noise. And one more drum program. You know, and then it's just the... Um... So there's only four four things. So there's two extra bits, just a slight... But, you know, and it's kind of... Well, certainly this section is intentionally shabby, you know, because it's kind of the... It's meant to be desolate and kind of... We wanted it to be not exactly pleasant. Yeah, and but so it has a dark feel to it, doesn't it's it? It's got quite a dark tense. Yeah. But um, then there's a shift. There's this one shift. Well, then shift there's where a shift where, the, so it, where, when it shifts point of view from her perspective to his perspective. I think we were kind of thinking that he he's so enamored with Becky that he, you know, I was kind of imagining that he thinks he's in a really cool club in LA. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so then the music changes to. She was like nothing that he'd seen before. Strong body, so- so that stays. So like those those drum sounds are much more normal. <laughs> <laughs> but so he so, he's got the romantic. Uh, yeah, he thinks it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she's quite cynical about him. Well, kind of, she's sympathetic, but then her friends help accentuate her cynicism about him somehow. Yeah. And um, but you're controlling their reaction to it with the music, I think. Yeah, so it turns smooth at one point, and then mm. it turns, and then it kind of alternates between the A section and the B, and the kind of the speed of the alternation speeds up so that you you're kind of moving quicker and quicker. I'll just play it out from the last one into the chorus. <laughs> I haven't heard this for so long. I haven't heard it since then, I don't think. And that's kind of like, that sort of both both halves kind of come together because you've got, it's sort of in that smooth style of the B kind section. Kind of G-funk like melody line. <laughs> yeah, this, but it's like a, it's like a G-funk, so a West Coast melody line, but it's like really coked up because it's all jittery. It's like not, it's just not smooth. Like it should be really smooth, but it's a really horrible sound. 
I mean, that's one of the interesting things, particularly about the first two records, is the use of horrible sounds in a way. And that sounds a bit critical, but it's it's kind of crucial. Yeah. You know, um, that they are meant to be jarring, aren't they? Mm, yeah. You know, they are meant to kind of make you uneasy. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's supposed to be an uncomfortable ride. You know, it's not. It's not for fun. <laughs> <laughs> It's not easy listening. It's not Jack and Ori <laughs> or a bedtime I th- story. I thought it was quite fun. Yeah. I always thought it was fun. Oh, no, no, it's yeah. fun. But like I mean, Making like these... Because also, I just thought that that's... I was under the impression that that's just what you... What your music sounded like. Like, kind of hardcore, like, dark, like... like um, well, I mean, obviously it is, but that's just why we... But then when I, then I listened, like, I was like, yeah, it's just what Dan's, it's what Dan's into, like... This was like him, we call him the evil genius. That's like just that's his name because of, because he's an evil genius and that he loves like evil sounding music. And um, then I would listen. I listened to like some stuff that you've made with like, for example, the other day I was listening to your album with Emiliano Torini. And I was like, this is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so it was yeah. yeah. So there, there is a difference, isn't there? For sure, yeah. 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 I think that definitely it serves. It creates this like sense of suspense and like dread and unease. And then when you do get the more beautiful moments, like theme from Becky or mm. when Willie Mason sings the the <laughs> stink, you get these moments throughout the album that are like well earned moments of like reprise, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we're going to listen to a single track from each of these three albums. So should we move on from Martial Law? I mean, it's amazing how simple in terms of the musical ingredients. And as a mm. producer, um, you know, it must have been difficult possibly to not bring in... Overload things. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's the easiest thing to do to keep on adding to tracks because, you know, you think you can improve a track by putting more in it, but really... Most of the time, I think, you know, it's better to try and just make sure that what's in there already is right. Um, yeah, it makes me really happy looking at those logic sessions and only seeing four tracks or five tracks, you know. Mm. I remember um, working with James Blake once on his very first stuff and he brought around the logic thing for Limit to Your Love. And it was it only had three tracks on it. I was just, it's a reminder that you you don't need a lot to sound amazing if you know what you're doing, saying. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think me and Kate have thought about this loads. If the lyric is carrying all the intention, then you want as little as possible to get in the way of it. It has to be good, but there shouldn't it shouldn't be conflicting with itself or with the, the lyric. So we've, we've usually kept them pretty sparse, haven't we? Yeah. Well, it's such um, a great combination. I'm just thinking if we do move on to the next song um, from the next album, do we need to round things up with a, a blast of the finished version of Martial Law? Yeah, or? maybe. Can you do that, though? Yeah, yeah, because I think we can. Yeah. I get up every morning and I put a shirt and suit on and I get on a train, I go uptown, it's all professional users. I said in the boardrooms and not the boozers to, like, CEOs and these modern-day Scrooges who get their secretaries to bring me coffee. It's so stupid. Meant to be hard times, right? A recession. But these guys are buying more than ever, I reckon. And I- He's got nice eyes. It's a shame about his issues, though. The party pushes on. Her cynicism's getting vicious. Show nothing. Keep smiling. She catches the eye of her mates. They're dancing by the 
boy, they're in a state not to save me, they understand Dance over, put their arms around his shoulders Becky, we're bored, let's go His mouth slows to a stop, he seems to lose his composure She smiles at him, yeah, it was nice getting to know her No, not like that, don't leave, please Don't leave, girl, no, please, just got He's getting desperate, isn't he? You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So that is Martial Law from Everybody's Down. And uh, we're going to leap to the next album, Let Them Eat Chaos. Two years later is when it was released, two and a half years later. And we were going to focus on the track We Die. So, But in the meantime, uh, an awful lot of experience had um been experienced in that you found a label to release it the album came out it got nominated for a mercury prize mm. you you did lots of shows together dan became part of your live band mm. um and the live band was <clears throat> how many at that stage there were four or five people yeah we at the beginning it was it was five of us it was dan two drummers so quake bass and georgia mm. uh, who's now georgia yeah as in pop soup star yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was playing drums uh and sometimes it was Liam from Boxing playing drums. And then, did we have another synth? We had Amph, Amph uh, Clark singing and um, just being amazing and being like my kind of hype woman back up. It was absolutely bonkers band. It was like <laughs> such, even just listening to that bit of martial law brought it all back. Like we played some pretty hardcore shows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what did you think you would do next? You know, when did you think you might reconvene and make another record? Was there any plan? Was there, what did you have a discussion, a meeting? Uh, what what did you decide to do, or did just Kate turn up out of the blue and knock on your door? Well, no, we planned to get back in as soon as as possible, really. And we did a couple of. Well, I think did we 
I think we started the thing on... out with. Did we do a deal with fiction straight away, or maybe not straight? But we kind of we just knew what we were doing, and it all made a lot more yeah, sense. It was and we kind to of get we, time. we blocked out two weeks, and we wrote a bunch of stuff, um, and then I feel like we'd already started chaos or started the demos towards it. Like we were touring everybody down, but we were like well into chaos. I'm pretty sure. Well, we wrote Bad Place for a good time, didn't we? Yeah. But that, I guess that would make sense if if the album had already been, you know, written and recorded <clears throat> by at least a year before it came out. Yeah, yeah. Then we were well be, on our way. As, mm. as artists, you'd be moving on, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. thinking about the next stage. But I guess the great thing was that you had a, a more surety of purpose in that you, you kind of knew, right, we work together, this is mm. great, and we've got something to, also, to build we on went, we were out in Shangri-La. That was in 2015 we were in Shangri-La. So, so but, uh, we should mention then, because this does link into uh, the book of Traps and Lessons and how that eventually came out. But um, So, Kate, we met recently, talked for my radio show. Yeah. And um, by this stage, so by even before Everybody's Down came out, you had a phone call out of the blue from Rick Rubin, yeah. who saw you perform on television um, one of your pieces from Brand New Ancients, yeah. which was the, what's the right word to dis- way to describe that? Um, I call it a long poem. A long poem, which yeah. you had done as a performance, but also you had recorded it, but it took you to the States. Yeah. Um, you went on a television show. Um, can you remember what that show was? Uh, it was called The Charlie Rose Show. Right. So you were on The Charlie Rose Show yeah. and you had condensed a section of Brand New Ancients for to perform for mm. the television Rick saw this and then somehow got your number and rang you up. Mm-hmm. So from w- what I understand, that not, didn't put a spanner in the works, but it meant that the two of you, you and Dan, had something else to start thinking about in that this person had got in touch to say, I like your work, I'd like to work with you in some way. And so when you went to Austin, Texas to promote Everybody's Down and performed there, you then combined that with a trip to California mm. to hook up with Rick Rubin and visit his studio Shangri-La. But that story continues then a few years further down the line. But at the same time, it has an impact both on Let Them Eat Chaos yeah. and on the third album. But the week that we spent there definitely impacted the way that we were thinking about uh, writing just in general. And I think some of our frustrations about the confusion of that week and the confusion of the whole process... I think fed directly into some of the songs that ended up being songs from Let Them Eat Chaos, like you know the mm. the more rowdy songs. Because we didn't we make Good Place for a Bad Time, send it to Rick, and he just said, "I don't want to make a record with drums." Yes. And so we were like, "We really want to make a record with drums." <laughs> <laughs> so then we then it branched off into two things. So we wrote all these yeah beatless things, which we yeah then went Except and started working at. We took Shangri-La, played to him, tried different styles of recording those and then basically put that to bed and waited until we came back after we... We sort of went home, did the record with the drums, which is Let Them Eat Chaos, and then went back to Shangri-La and then really went in... Or at least then we spent about a year actually actually writing that stuff. Mm. Yeah. And then went and recorded that at the end of last year. Yeah, so we'll go into that in due course. But um, So you really wanted to make a record with drums... Yeah. So you said, thanks, Rick. Um, and you gave him some beatless stuff to ruminate on. 
Mm. Um, but then because of the drum itch, you went to scratch that further mm -hmm. and let the meat chaos resulted. Mm. Um, so we were going to play We Die from that. Why did you want to particularly examine this song, Dan? Because it's a good example of... There was an idea for a song to do with dying, but we couldn't... It took a lot of exploring to try and find out what that should be, and we... Our first attempt is... It's unreleasable. <laughs> um, I'm really glad that we haven't released it. But I think it's essential. It was essential to go through to arrive at what we did, which is, a, you know, it's maybe my favourite track of mm. off the album in the end. But we've had to go through this odd thing to get there. Do Do you have that to share with us? Yeah, excellent. And you're willing to share with us? It's really bad. <laughs> it was like three different songs, right? Before it became We Die. Yeah. Heard your voice so loud it woke me up Was it from inside my head Or is your ghost sat in this room I don't believe in ghosts Soon as your spirit rose up from your body Something changed Now every night about this time I hear your voice calling my name What is it where you are What happens after this It must be something Must be punching my fists against curtains Trying to hunt the shadows lurking in their midst I cannot breathe with that feeling You're breathing die I never even said goodbye Life goes on of course Don't get me wrong I'm not just morbidly obsessing With the portion of my chest that's given over to reflecting on your death I'm doing normal things But every now and then I catch a hint of something more akin To what you would have said if you still walk within this strange dimension And it throws my weight against the walls It takes every ounce of strength that I can muster Not to fall and bore my eyes out on So what was that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that in a what was that? But what was... That was... Version one or version well, two? I think, or... I think that was version one because I remember I remember we were talking about a loop that doesn't resolve, and yeah. then you were playing the chords that just kept getting lower. The and chords lower are and like lower. a shepherd tone. There's a chord sequence that starts high, and when it gets round to two octaves down, it starts again. But it, the first one carries on going lower, but then there's a higher one. And then when they get two octaves down, another one joins. So by the end, it's just a complete dirge. It's like a good idea, but it sounds terrible. Because by the end, it's just... It's just like five pianos all playing the same chord. But then then it goes, it's a sort of dis descent, but then it kind of, we decided it needed to go to heaven. <laughs> so we, we kind of made this... <laughs> but then, like, I think it's quite a good example of like, like what we often do is throw everything we have at an idea. Like that particular verse is like, kind of non-stop, like five minutes or something. And from that whole verse, probably four lines made it through to, to the song that mm. actually came out of this. Like, mm. all there's so much unnecessary detail that we don't need. But you need but to do like, it once to kind of to get it to write it and to. And when you're writing it, it, that, Kate, it, are you, I mean, is that, that all coming straight off the top of your head? Are you reading? Yeah, that's just, yeah. it's just like, it's the first part of it. So I'll sit mm. here with Dan and like, I, you know, I knew that there was a song I needed to write about this particular thing and this idea of like being visited by someone who's passed and telling yourself that you don't believe that they're there, but it's suddenly a full with thoughts of them, you know, and it was... So I'll write down in my notebook while Dan's playing and then what you're hearing on the mic is the first time I've ever said it out loud. So I'll get to the end of the page and I'll say, Dan, I'm ready, like, let's give it a go. And then we'll record it and then 
then we like live with that for a bit and then we're like okay we it wasn't the case with other demos where you you either know it's working or it isn't working with this it was like it isn't working but there's something worth pursuing in it so then we then the next thing was that we decided to take it to heaven (laughs) we were like it needs to be more <laughs> is that what is that? It's an auto heart. The terrible thing is, I've got this impression in my head now of Dan as a cherub with an auto heart. It's exactly, it's exactly <laughs> somewhere it was. in heaven, and Kate's that's, on another cloud. That's exactly yeah. what was going on. It's also because a little bit because the. The, the very beginning of the record, which we had done the picture of vacuum, you know, it has that Celeste thing. And that really reminded me of, do you know, the film A Matter of Life and Death? Mm, yeah. And that all the scenes in heaven. I think that's exactly what was mm. we were thinking of, you know, this kind of black and white, <laughs> but very bright, strange. Anyway, yeah. But Can we have a bit more of that? Of heaven? Yeah. If your life was a struggle, your life was well lived, your legacy left in the memory, vital enough, it will come to your loved ones as sudden as weather. Are those the same words or are they different no, words? No, yeah, no, they're different red. words. Yeah. Terrible words. <laughs> but the words, listen in this, the very end of here. die so others can be born we age so others can be young the point of life is live love if you can then pass it on so that that's, that's what that survived. made it yeah yeah so that so the survives. whole thing yeah wow and, and of those that, two passes through this idea that you're yeah. trying to reach for yeah. so if we go to the when we revisit and that in fact that whole first verse about waking up to somebody being there because I knew at this moment that this thing about 418 that what links all these songs is is one moment in time we knew we wanted the album to move horizontally through time Mm. and I knew that it was the case that someone had woken up thinking of somebody being in the room so that whole first verse can be then condensed into one line which is I heard your voice so loud it woke me up I don't believe in ghosts that was the line that made it through to the album that's all you need to say but it took me like eight minutes of like yeah. Saying everything before I realised, which is I think is quite useful to share with people because the idea of editing is in, until you're actually in the room and you're with somebody that you feel confident and safe enough to just to not limit yourself at all and to have no fear that what you're writing is going to be awful. You know, you don't imagine that you're going to be playing it on the podcast to loads of people. <laughs> but like, I think there's something quite useful to be said there that we just threw everything that we had at it without any fear or shame. And then from that, we were able to make what I think is probably, yeah, on, I think it's my favourite song as well mm. on that album. And I think that just that sentence alone says so much. Mm. I heard your voice so loud it woke me up. I don't believe in ghosts. No. And were you able, did, did you realise that a few days later or after you'd lived with it for a bit? Or did you realise that? No, we'd lived pretty much with then. it quite long. I think it was one that we then worked on other tracks and kind of knew that it was a bit of a awkward one. But then came back to it and I think probably realised that both the the lyric and the music were probably too much detail in the 
original lyric and the music was trying too hard to illustrate what the lyric was saying too literally and sometimes you don't need to you know this kind of descent into gloominess you know you don't need to literally make it you know it's actually better <laughs> to just make a beat <laughs> that yeah. sounds really cool and uh yeah so we that, just got the swarmatron out <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is interesting so i mean it, it, because you were th- intending to write a song about death and you start writing some doomy piano chords yeah. that you know could be appropriate for a funeral and then you think oh no, we're gonna go to heaven so then you get the auto harp out and, yeah. sit on a cloud but you've got to go through <laughs> yeah. that to get to something else yeah to get to here which is obviously better it's a strange thing, your face seems to fade with the changing seasons Then for some reason it comes back more present than ever well, Not your face really, more a sense of you And is that the Swarmatron doing that insistent, repetitive? That's the Swarmatron, which, and I think here the, the key thing about the Swarm is not the Swarm itself, it's the way it's being triggered It's being triggered with a with swings, which is a thing that can just put a tiny amount of swing onto it So you can't quite, it's not even, but it's not quite uneven yeah. And so I'm just But in, you know, without all the kind of piano tone business, that's Right. That's all that's needed really. Nearly got in trouble, I got angry with my manager. There's this young girl who works with us, she tried to put his hand. Wasn't there another version as well? With, with a beat. I remember there being a version between that version and this. Maybe probably saying that because you're not around, but I'm keeping my chin up though I don't let it get me down. I remember when you played that beat, and it was like, oh. What, this beat? Yeah. yeah. I think I know you better than I did when we were hanging out together. What's it like where you've gone? Well, I can feel it. It's okay, I know you can't say. But you've been with me all day. I have to tell you, when it happened, I couldn't cry for ages. But when it hit me, I fucking screamed like a lion in a cage. And look, I fought. Oh, yeah, the guitar. It's got a bit of guitar, yeah. yeah. There's not very much guitar on the record, but it's little bits. Now and again. But that's the thing about um, having space, you know, when there's only, when most of the tracks only have a handful of elements, like really quite basic guitar parts. Sounds really good when it comes in because it just lifts it. You're not, there's not that much in that range usually. Mm. But you've got that nice bass line um, that's already there. That. Mm. Again, not much to no, it. No, <laughs> it's, it's quite simple, but. We're, Coupled with everything else, yeah. it has a real momentum to it. I and think. it's in a different key from the... It's like it's a tone up from where it could, sort of should be. It's not playing the root. So we should say, no, Kate, you have musical training. You know, you play instruments. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people don't know about necessarily, but it, that, that, because obviously, you know, you're there performing and speaking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you bring musical knowledge to the combination with Dan. No, you're not completely reliant on Dan Guru. I mean, obviously, <laughs> but well, did, you know what I mean, though. There's that you've yeah. got some sense. You know, when you start thinking about the music that go with your words, you've got ideas about that. I definitely think that we we are lucky to be in a situation where we can communicate really well about both the music and the lyrics. Like Dan has had experience as a film editor before he was a music producer. So he's really good at spotting unnecessary detail, for example, and being like, I remember once he was just like, we were doing the first version of The Heist. And he was like, we don't need to see them get out of the car and walk to the door. We can just cut straight to inside the club. 
And like, I was like, wow, amazing. We just saved ourselves two minutes of like really boring detail. And and similarly, like, yeah, I used to play the guitar and I used to play the piano and stuff, but not my expertise is in my lyricism. And when I discovered lyricism, I threw everything that I had at it. But I also love and I'm passionate about music and know what I enjoy. And I feel like similarly, what when I'm feeling something, when I'm enjoying something, like we talk about it and that will encourage the music to go in a certain direction. Mm. And same when Dan's into what I'm writing, he encourages me to kind of go further in that direction. But um, yeah, I feel like it's kind of mutual, isn't it? It's like yeah. it's we're able to completely delve into the, our own perspectives, but we can talk about we're good at communicating about how it's how it's going. I think. Yeah, we do it in a fairly fairly abstract way. I, you mm. know, I, I might. Yeah, like you say, suggest an edit to words, but I don't feel very. <laughs> I don't you know, know, I just remembered. I just when you were just talking, I just remembered when we tried to write that pop song for. Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to write a pop song to to be considered by like a pop star. They were looking for like some demos. It was one of the most terrible lyrics that I've ever. <laughs> <laughs> but that was quite an interesting one where I was looking to you for guidance there. Because yeah, you, like, you were like, I don't know. <laughs> Dan basically said to me like, okay, look, in a pop song, see all these words that you've got here on this page that you've just written. It's like, basically, we need two of those words. <laughs> I was like, what? He said, yeah, yeah, no, that's how a pop song works, that you have like maybe two words <laughs> instead of like... <laughs> two pages. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, wow, that was, it, was a, it was a deep education that day. The song that we wrote didn't get selected for the the hit, unfortunately. But you, but you have it in your back pocket ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm just just waiting for that. The car crash moment when that's our next record. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with We Die, you know, you've gone through a couple of versions where you end up with four lyrics that you use. And where did those other lyrics come from? Did they come once you'd got the music sorted you know, and then you wrote those other bits that you required? It's like... Um a bit more organic than that. Like as the beat starts coming together for Dan, then things start making sense lyrically for me. And, you know, by the point that we died, the beat, this version came together, we already had Let The Meet Chaos pretty clearly. We had it shaped, didn't we? Because that song took the place of We Die. It was called Ghost, something Mm. like that. So we knew the purpose the song would serve, but we just needed to improve on it. So when Dan did find that, started to find that beat, I already knew what the song needed to do. So the lyrics and the music came, Quite, came, came yeah, together. Yeah, I to remember, I? yeah, as soon as we had the As soon as we had the track, beat. you like, okay, I'm ready. And then I, then I just, because I just knew, the I just wanted to flow mm. over that. Dun, dun, yeah. dun, dun. And then I just, I really have enjoyed, with Let The Meet Care, so I, what I really enjoyed doing was um, like intricate flow that is um, basically... On all of our albums, there have been moments where I've been like completely allowed to indulge the flow. Like on Happy End from our first album, that was like it's basically just me, just having the most fun I could possibly have with pushing the rhythms, like, <laughs> and because I know that Dan gets a kick out of it as well. That it's just amazing that he would be playing live and then I would just I was just writing and I couldn't even keep up with my own yeah. hand. I was like <laughs> writing backwards over the page because I just didn't couldn't even have time to turn the page. I just had to like, and I was upside down and everything, like just trying to get this like flow out. And it was, 
it was just electric. It just felt so exciting. And the same, when you feel the beat and you feel like the beat is completely supporting you to be adventurous in your flow, that's when you're like, right, this is the one. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, it clearly there's such a sense of, of kind of purpose to the construction of each track in that because you are telling a story, mm-hmm. it has a role. It has, um, beyond just being a song or a poem, it has a function to play, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, which is pretty crucial within the whole arrangement of each album and each story. It's so exciting doing it that way. Mm. When me and Dan were in here, and like drawing maps, <laughs> yeah, and like thinking about the function of each song, I, for me it's like, let them eat chaos, definitely. It was just this moment of um, feeling, yeah, p- absolutely purposeful with the creativity. Like, you're not just kind of, a passenger on your own creativity but you're driving it you want to take you know you're trying to get somewhere and it creates something in the room that is like it's it's all, it's kind of inexhaustible energy because you're trying to find this way of making seven characters meet through something that happens that gets them all out of bed at one point we were like what is it is does something explode through all of their walls like you know what like we were trying to find we wanted the to, thing yeah we wanted to sort of emphasize the idea that although it sounds like a narrative at first that it's all happening at the same time so we were going to have a big bang going yeah. off at the same point in each song and it kind of turned into the storm I suppose didn't yeah. it but something to locate it so that you realise that you're rewinding at the beginning of each song yeah I think throughout that period that's all we really thought about I remember just just constantly being in that world you know yeah. outside the studio as well and what I find happens when you're immersed in that in like the, in a world that you've imagined and the music that you make and the song, the lyrics that you write, they're coming from this other place. It just, yeah, it just gives you this extra energy to be inspired because you're trying to solve a problem all the time. It's There's this other level to it, which isn't just about expression, but it's about like getting to the root of some kind of, um, yeah, some problem. You've, you've got to investigate the avenue to solve the problem of how to get these strangers out of bed <laughs> at four in the morning. It's, like, it's amazing. It, it just means that it's so, I just remember being so excited the whole time we were yeah, writing. Yeah. And when things start to make sense, it's like you can see this thing playing out in front of your eyes. Like it becomes visual as well, mm. you know. And that's when all that, like starting it with saying picture of vacuum. I remember phoning up Dan when I'd when written in it. Italy, I yeah. was in Italy writing in this like, the, this amazing residency for artists called Civitella Ranieri, and I was out there writing and we had a kind of a version of this album that played with different old takes of certain things. Bad Place for a Good Time was in that. Mm. And uh, I was like, how do we get into the city? Because the first, we had Lion Mouth Door Knocker. <laughs> it, was, it was slightly different, but we had at any given moment in the middle of a city, there's a million epiphanies occurring. We had this like music, it's kind of like this dark computer game, like, and a, uh, and I was like, how do we get in there? And then it just, I just saw it. It has to be, it has to be space and we have to have this slow zoom and we have to just like allow people to know that we're going to go so intimately into everybody's brains and that that can help us get from the city street into the homes, into the minds of these seven strangers. And then once I had it, it just came out really quickly and I phoned up Dan and I left you a voicemail. And then he phoned me back and he was like, what was that? Like, what? He was like almost in tears, weren't you? Like yeah. by a picture of vacuum, you were like, "This is how we need to start the record." He all he was saying to me was, "Imagine picking up a vinyl, like putting the needle on the vinyl, and the first thing you hear is silence and picture of vacuum." 
and then these like bang, the chords that come in. And it's to zoom in, it's the kind of drawing you in from, on such a huge scale. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah. And that's amazing because I never really would think about how, because Dan's made so many records, but he's thinking about what happens when you put the needle on the vinyl, which for me was like, wow, I'd never even kind of dared to dream, you know, like that. So, mm. I mean, should we hear that? Should we hear that opening to the album? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Picture a vacuum, an endless and unmoving blackness. Peace, or the absence at least of terror. I see in amongst all this space that speck of light in the furthest corner, gold as a pharaoh's coffin. Now follow that light with your tired eyes. It's been a long day, I know, but look. Watch as it flickers and then roars into fullness and fills the whole frame, blazing a fire you can't bear the majesty of. Here is our sun. And look, see how the planets are dangled around it and held in that intricate dance. There is our Earth. Our Earth. Its blueness soothes the sharp burn in your eyes. Its contours remind you of love. That soft roundness, the comfort of ocean and landmass. Picture the world, older than she ever thought that she'd get. She looks at herself as she spins, arms loaded with the trophies of her most successful child. The pylons and mines, the power plants shimmer in her still, cool breath. Now is that a smile that plays across her lips? Or is it a tremor of dread? The sadness of mothers as they watch the fates of their children unfold. In now, in fast, kaleidoscopic vision, the colors like drugs in your belly, churning, your skin pulled loose as a pup, shaken and tightened. Now everything's flashing in the waves and magnified. So is that the Swarmatron? Coming in. No, that's actually um, the Bookler, the Bookler music easel. Right. That is kind of like the evil genius coming in, though, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, it's such a beautiful opening. And actually, I'm thinking of the Clangers as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Has a, has a, a great Clangers-like yeah. introduction. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, something that I'm learning from this conversation is I didn't realise just how collaborative the story was between mm. the two of you because I, I think there's a temptation to think of these records as Kate writes a load of words mm. turns up to Dan and some music results but and always you know it's a bit more than that but mm. it's very collaborative mm. you know you're using Dan as a way of exploring things and trying things out you know with that encouragement and support and mm. you know you end up getting there you know and it, it shows just how vital that combination is absolutely yeah yeah we definitely live in the world that yeah together look around it's amazing like i feel in all of the areas that i work in whether it's writing a play or writing an album or writing a novel like when you're writing a play you have the support of the director often they will take a kind of dramaturgical role with you and you'll run drafts past them and 
And then also it's extremely collaborative once you start having actors in the room to workshop the text. And when you're writing a novel, you have an editor to like, you know, tell you when you've gone too far. <laughs> uh, but and, and in music, that I feel like the role that Dan has in my writing is a similar kind of role. Like you just have this, um, this, this other pair of ears who cares about the idea and wants to help you get the idea as far as you can. there's some they're my they're some of the most precious relationships in my life really like these collaborative relationships with the people that I work with on creating Mm. whatever it is I'm trying to create but when I was just listening to that I was thinking about I could hear the Rick Rubin effect you know because the fact that we included on this album these poetic soundscape bits I think is a direct feed from the work that we were doing together trying to get this album for Rick ready because um, by that time we'd already made four or five. Yeah, hold your own. People's faces they were made. Yeah, but his thing was try not to rap to the beat, <laughs> regardless of whether there is a beat or not. Even if there's this, this is the bit that took us loads of time to figure out is you can still be rapping to a beat even if there aren't drums, and you mustn't even do that. But so the beginning of that and then the end of Tunnel Vision, there's yeah. both that. But also the bits in between the songs, when you meet the characters mm. in Let Them Eat Chaos, you get these little poetry interludes. Um, and then I definitely think that that was a direct result of having Rick's words in my ear, you know, mm. don't be afraid to use your poetry in your music kind of thing. So I think you can definitely see the direction that we're heading in Yeah. here. I can feel where it's leading us, you know. Yeah. So that phone call and then the visit to Shangri-La is still in the back of your mind and kind of weighing heavily um, because here's somebody you look up to and you want to somehow be able to give him what he wants in the sense of realise the faith he has in you. And it's interesting because of this, it's so, so important to have the two of you so, you know, Rick contacts Kate. Kate works with Dan. Rick is a renowned producer, Dan. Um, d- did you feel that he was kind of inveigling his way into your territory? or no, 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 not at all. I mean, I don't think he's the way that we look at production. I think it's quite, you know, I mean, when I, when I say that I'm a producer, I mean, I'm like, you know, I like playing things and, mm. you know, fiddling. I mean... Can't imagine Rick coming in and sort of saying, "Oh no, I want to play the play the bass, <laughs> play the guitar." <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's just you know his you know he's got this idea, and he, well, you know, we were talking to him about it. He was saying, you know, his what he's really good at is knowing exactly what he likes. You know, having an idea for how something should be, listening to it, and knowing whether it is it or not. Mm. Just saying that's not it. Um, so. Uh, no, I kind of have always thought it was an adventure. Yeah, there was like times when he would suggest things that were kind of abstract to us. Like he sent us some loops, for example. And we were like so confused when we played them because we'd been writing these songs without drums or whatever it was that we were trying to do. And... um I feel like that his relationship with producers there, like when he works with an artist out there, he probably has a bunch of producers that that collaborate all together on trying to get his vision across for the artist that he works with. That was the sense I got when they were talking about what happened when Kanye came in, etc., mm. to Shangri-La, that there would be these 
these people who would act as the kind of vehicles for Rick's vision, but obviously they would all be trying to make the music and try, trying to get the hot song on the record, etc. But the way Dan and I work is just completely different to that. Like, and I've, like I said at the beginning of this whole thing, it's like I'm not the kind of artist that can sit in a room with someone I've never met and feel like ready to go kind mm. of thing. It's not really how I understand my creativity. So that when the phone call from Rick came and it looked like we were going to be going over to Shangri-La to do some writing, it was never the case of me thinking, well, I'll just go on my own and like meet some producer that writes music that I've never met. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. I know that does happen all the time for artists and I know that artists do go in between different producers to try and find the best sound for their album or the best track or whatever it is, but it's much more like wholesome the way that I think about the process. So for me, it was always the fact that Dan and I would go over there and that actually I felt kind of indemnified against some of the more like challenging or kind of mind-blowing aspects of what happens in Malibu mm. because I had my <laughs> mate with me, you know, like, yeah. and we could both be blown away together by some of the things. Yeah, that no, on, I mean, you know? we were both quite receptive to whatever, yeah. you know, I mean, he, he's so, Rick's so convincing mm. and powerful that, you know, if he says try and find a way of breaking the rhythmic relationship between the voice and the track, you know, we're happy to spend two years trying to mm. do that, you know. And he, he said, you know, I'm not quite sure how you do it, but you just have to do it. And I think if it was someone else saying that, we might not have given it so but he's so you you know when he talks to you just like okay i'm definitely going to try and do this you mm. know yeah it's very so now but, i'm picturing so the intensity of kate's eyes when she's performing in the paradise bar in <laughs> deptford is it um and the intensity of dan's eyes when he's watching kate perform back in 2012 and now i'm thinking rick's eyes staring <laughs> at the two of you and he's explaining no i'm not sure how you do it but you can do it, but, but with an American accent. And uh, so, I mean, Rick's studio is Shangri-La in California, and mm. he it it belonged to other people before that. Um, he took it over. He's had all sorts of people perform there, and all sorts of people have performed and recorded there before that. I mean, what's it, can you remind me of this artistic legacy within there? It's pretty heavyweight, isn't it? It was Robbie Robertson's. That's right, isn't it? Mm. From the band. Mm. And... I think before that, I was told recently that it was like a brothel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hence it must that? have been Shangri-La. Yeah, <laughs> which is why it's called Shangri-La. Yeah, right, absolutely. And but the the energy in the place is like it's it's clean energy. It's like it's amazing. It feels great there. So I mean, I think it was probably quite a special. Brothel. <laughs> 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 anyway, but the the guys from um, Robbie Robertson, yeah, he had it, and the tour bus that. Bob Dylan and the band have been touring in. It's like parked up outside the studio in the garden where it broke down. And I think I think, I think there must have been someone between Robbie and Rick, or maybe not. But it's been a studio for like a, a long time. I think it's been a studio for like since the 60s at least or mm. before that. You know, but Rick, Rick took that bus and turned that into a, a writing room, was it, or a recording room? Yeah, you can record in it. Def yeah. Uh, yeah. He just, he made it. He, he has made all these beautiful little areas for writing and recording all over the studio. So where we recorded Book of Chaps and Lessons was a chapel that had burnt down that he then restored in this beautiful wood. It's, it really is a, it's an incredible place. So your first visit there was when you 
were over to play South by Southwest in Texas mm. um, in 2015, mm. and you nipped over for a week to Shangri-La, and that's when you were kind of first faced with this struggle of like, what's he really going for here? What's he saying? That's you know these great tracks that we've got from Let Them Eat Chaos that we've been working on. No, that's not it. What's he? What's he? Well, on it about? was no. It was we kind of. I think at that point we already knew that those weren't going to be the ones because mm. we'd spent this week writing songs with the guitar. Yeah, we'd had communication with him. We'd had communication yeah. that he, you know, we thought it'd be a good idea to bring a guitar. So when we, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, so write in a way that you'd never done before, which yeah. is to like strum a guitar and Kate put some words on yeah, top of Yeah, kind of. That. And then what, yeah. the, when the actual breakthrough was when, on the third day where he'd come in in the evening to hear what we'd done and we played him it and he'd, it still had too much connection between, even if I was just plucking guitar and Kate was rapping that we were still kind of playing off each other and we decided to shut ourselves in separate rooms you know so we could see each other but we couldn't hear each other and we just one of the songs we just go (laughs) we would just play completely and then when we played him that he was like yeah that's that's it it. that's what you need to do wow um Uh so then we started we do things like record a record a track record the rap just as a cappella, put it on shift it around and sometimes we'd actually take and put it on a different song and just really kind of use them what one way of thinking about it is to treat the imagine it's a film and treat the vocals as the picture and the music as the soundtrack or the music and on a you know if you imagine a film and you shift the music slightly from the you know it's not you don't you won't feel that it's terribly out of sync it'll just have a different the interference between the two things different at different points and so we were kind of quite free with where things could go and it then freed up the whole vocal performance and then and in a weird way also the music because then it doesn't need to be beats that you can flow over easily they're just mm. you know kind of the whole world's completely open um so i mean it is an album that really works from start to finish and you've been performing it, Kate, from start to finish. Yeah. And um, But it wasn't quite assembled like that initially, but the interesting thing is that you actually recorded it that way, didn't mm. you? So um, once you had um, all the component parts, you were back in Shangri-La and recorded the whole record as a live performance mm. three times a day for yeah. a week or something like that, um, which is pretty amazing because... Um, it's so far, I would say, with the first two albums, it's not bitty, but um, it fits and starts and, you know, working on something, then leaving it and coming back to it. And obviously you did that a little bit with the book of Traps and Lessons, but to capture the performance of both Dan, the musician, and Kate, the wordsmith, you decided that was the best way of trying to, to capture that, to capture that essence, which is one of the reasons why it flows so well from one song into another, mm. because that's the way you were actually performing it. There were no joins. It was all mm. one thing, which is pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, but when we were writing it, like I remember saying to you, that there should be kind of repeated motifs and it should play like a, like a suite. Mm. And we listened to Melody Nelson, mm. the Serge Gainsbourg yeah. album, <laughs> because I, which was, I heard it and I, I thought this is this is it like the way that this plays as a as a whole thing. 
So also it helps, I think, that you, you're you used to long-form poems. I mean, that mm. you know, I think it, you, you find it quite easy to take get your head around one 40-minute text as one thing. I mean, usually on an album you break it down just because it's hard to memorise a whole album's worth of lyrics, but because Kate's been, you know, working in other, you know, whether it's theatre or you know, going on stage and performing Tiresias, you know, it's like that's like an album mm. um, that gives you a way of, of being able to have an overview of something that you probably wouldn't be able to if you hadn't. But I remember the decision that we made to, like, memorise it, both of us. You, me- you learn how to play it and memorise it. Me learn how to play it, memorise it. What it revealed to us about the album was just huge. Like, when, when you speak a text... Basically, you begin with these words and suddenly those words have huge relevance and impact on words that occur three or four songs later. And then also six or seven songs later, you realise there's a link between these words that are coming up and the words that you said in the second song, which obviously you're aware of at some level as the writer, but until you're actually playing it, that's when you start to link all this stuff up in your head. And especially as you as you go out on the road, you start touring it. That's when you start to see all these connections and everything begins to make sense as a whole. And I just dream. I always have dreamed of being able to go into the studio and have that much, like, confidence in the lyric that I can completely disappear from it and let the lyric go. But you only really get to that point once you've memorised the text and it's in your body, and you don't even have to think about recalling it. It's just coming out of you. But you only really get to that point once you've been touring the album. So we, would, I would always talk to you about we do things the wrong way around. Like yeah, well, it's kind of it's like you hear it with bands have it often. You know, you record a you know, in a band and then go and tour it, then they're like, oh, we wish we could record it again now because we really mm-hmm. know it. Mm-hmm. But that's why, you know, after we finished writing it, we did those, I mean, not like a tour, but we did, we must have done six or seven shows mm-hmm. before, they were playing the album just completely beginning to end before Shangri-La. And then, you know, making sure that we had two the week before, went to Shangri-La. We had some audiences there on one or two of the shows we had, not shows, one or two of the recordings, we've made it a bit, you know, we let people come so that it, that kind of connected it with the experience of doing it in. You have to like trick yourself into believing that you know how to do it. And you, you do that by doing it in high pressure situations where yeah. there's an audience and you mm. can't stop. Right. That's how I feel anyway. Yeah. So we were going to look at one particular track, I Trap You. Mm. But I remember in our previous conversation, Kate, that there was a time when there was a time in a hotel where, um, was it Dan knocked on your door in the middle of the night and you worked on this one particular track and that was kind of, we've got something. People's faces, yeah. Yes, right. Um, And then there's another moment where you finally come up with what Rick is searching for and you play in this song and he kind of goes, not a bit crazy, but he gets quite animated for Rick as he's a Buddha-like figure. And, and I can't remember now which... which that, that was that was Hold Your Own. Right. That was the first one where he was like, yes, this is it, this is what we should be doing. And I think it was also... It was also I Trap You when... Yeah, he loved he I loved, Trap You. Yeah, and he, he just said, this is, this is finished, I'll put this out like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was his favourite one. People's Faces was the one where we were like really blown away by, by it. But the thing, and the thing about I Trap You, the thing, the reason that we thought it'd be a good one to play is because, like We Die, it went through so many different lives, and um, on its way to becoming the most complete of the demos that Rick had was hearing, mm. it had been like at one point it had this like kind of dubstep section. Dub 
I've got it all here. Yeah, let's, let's dig what, into that. It's, it's an, this is a really good example of... Um, I don't know why, but we wanted to do something that was led by the piano, and we had this idea that we wanted it to sound a certain way, and I've got... Uh, there's tons of us trying to figure it out, and there's this really funny bit where I'm just going to ding, 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 ding. And I'm like, oh, this is shit. And Kate's like, no, it's really good. <laughs> Keep going. And anyway, so it goes through a few versions like that. And then on the lead vocal track on the demo, you just say, um, and actually I've, I've done it different. It's it's something different now, but um, I just wrote it. But And then you just, you get done the whole thing. You're just doing it while I was like <laughs> fucking around with <laughs> tape recorder or something. It's, re- it's here. But we we kind of wanted it to sound like the music had come from somewhere else. Or like another world or something. So we we got all these. <laughs> it's just hours of this. I mean, it goes on. It actually goes on for two days. This is <laughs> <laughs> this is two. This is literally this is two days before. <laughs> and the Kate's just like, no, no, it's it's gonna be cool. <laughs> Anyway, that's literally <laughs> days of that. And then... Words in any mouth that were worth being said. Everything was arguments and things misunderstood. Anger in her element laughed over witless good. That was something... That's like from... Um, that was an early draft of a poem that went into Running Upon the Wires, I think. Yeah. So we cut, yeah, come up with the chord bit and then... So this is, I think, the drum track. But it's we we had this thing about yeah that's so we wanted to include elements from some songs in other songs, you know, like taking lyrics out of context and moving them around, and then but the rhythm of that is kind of in three or in six eight, but. It's got, it's just got a crowd beat underneath it. And then but when you join them all together, so we took the, the drums from Keep Moving, Don't Move, the other bit of piano and the snare drum. And then we've got this old um, tape machine that we found in an Oxfam shop. And anything you put on it just sounds... Too long to go into it just makes everything sound really grainy and old so then we, we took all of those elements and put them and then we called it amelie because it <laughs> <laughs> because it has such a an interesting quality because when i first heard it i thought of fairgrounds and yeah um that kind of thing yeah we slowed it down a bit as well. It has a kind of real wonkiness to it. Yeah, that's the tape machine, it's not steady, yeah. Right.
And then the, this is the vocal take. Okay, like you can just hear it at the beginning of it. Okay, I might get this a bit wrong. I don't know. It's not. It's not the kind of same thing as before. I don't know. It's a different thing. Whatever. I'll just do. It. Love is a self-made thing. <laughs> I am free. <laughs> I stare at the air and sea patterns. Yeah, I just wrote it. You here. just wrote it yeah. on the spot. Yeah. yeah. So this is the very first yeah. run through. How many billions walk this planet? I feel them. I feel them. You show me my mass. You show me I'm made up of atoms, and each one. Sp- that yeah, never that's... made it through. Cut that bit. It's amazing because Rick loved this song because it sounded like such a complete world. The music was in one world, the lyric was in another world, mm. and like because I think because of the tape machine that we'd used, or because it sounds like this bizarre. It sounds like a loop. Sounds like a sample. It doesn't really sound like that's Dan actually playing the piano. Mm. You know. And was it looped in anywhere? Or was it just a whole run through? Oh no, no, it's just once around the cycle, and then that's looped. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But then um, the, the other thing, I don't know why we did this, <laughs> <laughs> but we did this. <laughs> I trap you, we should say tenderly, at the end of a long day, while we keep each other desperately stagnant. I trap you. <laughs> No. I want you to be happy. I'm fretting my balance. Can you see I'm walking this threadbare tightrope? It's made up of dental floss stitched together with strands of tobacco and dog hair. It stretches between two fantasies. My fantasy of me and my fantasy of you. Beneath the enraging red shocked razor teeth, states of fury are all my insecurities. And all the little lies I like to tell myself, and every other reason that I can't see the truth. I trap you, I should have whispered in your ear at night as we fell asleep. And Rick was like, I like it, but. I like the main bit. (laughs) I don't lose that bit in the middle. And me and Dan were like, I mean, it's a good idea, actually, yeah, like, we should lose that bit in the middle. (laughs) That seems so. I mean, it's obviously, I'm used to what's on the record, but that seems so bonkers that you even kind of went to the point of actually sending him that bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point, we must have gone, we must have listened to that and just thought, yeah, that's, that's perfect. Absolutely, yeah. that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of, but that, I think that's quite a good illustration of how, like, like I was saying earlier, we're just, we're free to just do stupid stuff. Mm. And um Because it might be good. I mean, you know, there are lots of... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes lots of, it is good. No, yeah. lots of the stuff that we like, I'm sure another version of us would look at and think, what are you doing? That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but that, and that's why this relationship with Rick has been so interesting for us both because it like it's quite for me I've got this relationship with Dan where he can help me edit like I was saying or things like that or just somebody to kind of talk about the ideas with as they grow and Dan does have that with me but because I'm not in the musical world I'm in I'm coming I'm thinking so heavily about the lyrical world so for you to have to have Rick, Rick saying seriously Dan that's enough <laughs> <laughs> it's really good yeah, it's a, I think that's quite a good depiction of like when, when his guidance has been pretty invaluable. Yeah, you know? and but it it is so interesting because particularly with "I Trap You," the way the music works is that it's it's in the distance. You know, it's it sounds like it could be from outside, like an open through an open door mm. or something. Mm. Um, and you know, that's obviously a balancing thing. That's a mixing thing that you've decided. Right, that's what we want to do, so that. Know, the the voice can be heard, but it's also partly because we did record. We recorded record and just put a mic the other side of the room, so it's kind of right. it was that we were talking about yeah. exactly that. How you were supposed to be really close to the listener, and the music was yeah yeah on the sofa. Did yeah. we put it outside at one point? I think we tried it yeah. outside, yeah. But in the end, we did it. We just put it in where the drums are, and then mic'd it. 
And but did Kate just do the one pass on those words then? Uh, well, I mean, so I mean, I think on the demo of that, it was just one pass. Mm. Um, but all of them, as we were saying, you know, we kind of we got to a, a demo still fairly finished musically, but not you know just demo vocals. And then, but then when we went to Shangri La, we just put it into a sampler and a keyboard so that I could play it on the Swarmatron and the piano and the thing. And then, so all the vocals again, obviously, were done in this single take there. So. There wasn't much point doing more than, you know, multiple passes here because mm. we knew we were going to do it again. And mm. we had all the practice, the live shows and kind of, I mean, definitely that one. There's no other vocal take of it. Yeah. We edited it. I think but. we knew that we knew that what Rick was going to be able to offer is a guidance on how to get the best vocal take out of me. Like he'd, he'd kind of explicitly made that clear as well, that that he thought that he could... By him being there and listening, something happens to the performance, like for both of us. When he came in the room to listen, like it just stepped up a little bit, you know? Mm. So we, I think we both knew that we'd get the take for the vocal there. We did loads of work on the music here. And but then, ultimately it was all down to the actual performance days. Yeah. It? And the music that we hear on the album is all the music that was performed on the day at Shangri-La, is it? Well, it's, or did it depends you... what, I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's triggering samples, but usually what you would do in that situation is to take an instrumental version of the album and we'd record the vocal track along with the multi-track of the thing. But it doesn't make sense with this because it's it has to be led by the, by the vocals. So, you know, the reason for doing it is so that if Rick says to Kate, okay, you which, you know, it's happened once or twice, you know, okay, maybe you could do one where you deliver it less powerfully or more you know slow it down a bit if we had an instrumental track that would be impossible because you're locked into it already so i'm just operating the the music in a way just to so that if kate decides to slow down i can add some more bars of something or just play slower mm. but i'm always following her so what i was doing in a way wasn't really a performance of the music because a lot of it was just you know pressing a key and it would trigger something i'd already done so it's a kind of weird hybrid between sort of playing it, but... It was amazing what it, you were doing. He was, like, surrounded by keyboards, mm. like, playing with his hands behind his back sometimes and, like, reaching up there, like... I mean, it was it's staggering. What you, like, obviously, hearing you talk about it, for you, it's, like, pretty chill, like, you were just <laughs> triggering the parts, but it was... Every person, all the engineers that saw him doing it were like, whoa, like, what is he doing (laughs) because what he's yeah like we had raven bush and um and biscuit our friend came in to play the flute part and the violin part which dan had written and they played and then he sampled that in and he had he was triggering the parts and then he's also playing the piano lines and at the same time like he had these collider loops bringing in the piano loops and out and then at the same time taking all of the musical cues from the lyric because there is no time signature because I'm not locked in. So it just has to be that when he hears me say a certain word, that brings in the next song. And because we know that the album should play as one thing and the kind of seamless links between song and song, you know, you were doing all that. You were bridging the gaps between the songs and, like, when mm, Fire Smoke's mm. coming in, you start to bring the chords in and the arpeggiator in lessons, you're doing that. Mm. You had, you're doing that live. I mean, it was like... It's a good system for doing it because amazing. you can bring in the, all of the recording that you've done but it's still malleable you know you can it felt live it felt yeah, like it would, like when we started i'd be in the booth and he'd be in the studio outside the booth 
and it felt like okay ready oh yeah yeah Go. oh it's definitely yeah, it's de- yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? and they all have a different quality a different mm. feeling to them and rick was present for all of those run-throughs yeah. mm. um and then how did you decide so if you were doing three a day for five days or, or, or something it wasn't quite we did, that we much. did two we did two a day no tuesday two, we did two three. on monday three on tuesday one on wednesday yeah and we had it yeah and did you combine or did you just was there just one that that is the one we we combined, we combined. yeah we got like we were both kind of dead set on just using one weren't we mm. and then rick was like well kind of stupid because if there might be a really good and you know so mm. we made it we then that was almost the hardest part of the, yeah. the whole process was making this chart of you know monday morning and then we listened through it and like kind of do you know draw shapes where we liked that bit kind of graphs and shapes yeah. and they never really it was what quite... was amazing about it was that so on tuesday we had had a bit of a party because um <laughs> we had had some people come to be an audience and we took the mics outside and we we played it to an audience of like i don't know 20 people or something that was came to just listen in the studio and after we finished doing that uh we just had a bit of a party and um and then the next morning we went to do the take the next morning and I was kind of hung over and my voice was kind of gravelly and I was feeling a bit like sorry for myself. And when we were assembling the album, I kept finding that hold your own. If you do it with too much certainty, then it becomes uh, like preachy and it kind of, you lose contact with the pain at the root of it. So I kept finding that I was being too declamatory on all the takes, but on the hangover take, because I was feeling so vulnerable and you can hear it in my voice and I'm being really... My voice is about, you know, it's it's lower. It's like it's like half an octave lower, and um, and there's something about the uncertainty in that take that was absolutely perfect for hold your own. But that I would never have been able to do if I had been trying. And actually, since that moment of deciding to use that take, every time I go to perform hold your own in the set, I always remember to kind of zone into a feeling of like my own unease, like mm. get and and never be too confident with it. And I was thinking, like, oh, man, we shouldn't have had a party last night. I felt really bad. Because when Rick came in and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> but actually, it was really good for the for the album. <laughs> it was a good party as well. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. I mean, it's an interesting process because, um, especially maybe for you, Dan, as somebody who records a lot of records and works with a lot of different bands and artists recording music, this seems such a different <clears throat> way of doing the whole thing mm. um, and possibly has opened up other other doors for the future, but it's, it's clearly worked so well for, for this particular work. I mean, I do think that recording in, in long stretches is better than, I think it's good to look at whatever you're doing, you know, to not break it down too much, you know. I, think, uh, I mean, it's quite extreme doing a whole... A whole album in one take, but um, it's that overview thing. I think it's what we were talking mm-hmm. about before. If you start looking at what you're working on as as a whole, I think you get more from it. But it's you know what we were talking about before, and I was talking about my daughter. All um, she would never listen to a whole album because it's it's all going to sound the same. And I was asking, she was getting bored of her playlist, and. Mm. I was like, well, have you ever just gone into one of those songs and then listened to the whole album that it comes from? And she said, like, yeah, but it would all sound the same. I don't want to do that. So it's it's really interesting wow. how, you know, someone of 14, you know, the thing that we strive for 
that's what she's trying to avoid every time. Some... <laughs> 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 I think it's, no, I mean, it's, yeah. it's weird, but, um, yeah. <laughs> maybe we're barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> uh, there are times when you jolt us, you know, as you go from, uh, you know, in keep moving, don't move and, you know, brown eyed man. And, you know, that's, uh, that's a jolt. Yeah, isn't yeah for sure. It? No. Yeah. Um, so following on from our discussion, um, there are other points of view and other questions to be asked of you both um, from um, both um, the people behind the podcast. They've got some repeat questions that we ask people again to get uh, kind of a, a sense of everybody's response to different things, but also some other questions from, from elsewhere. So um, what piece of advice would you give, Kate, to any aspiring musician or producer? Uh I think that the piece of advice I would give is a piece of advice that was given to me by a theatre director called Ian Rickson. And at any opportunity, I try and make this um, known to the world, which is that when I had some stage fright and was dealing with concern about going up on stage, I spoke to Ian and he said, like, completely in passing, he didn't even realise that he was being um, as lucid as this, but he said... Shock them into focus with clarity of intent. And for me, that is just, that's the mantra. You know, when you're sitting down to write or you're, or you're about to go out on stage or you're trying to work out what it is that you're trying to do that day, what you're trying to do is shock them into focus with clarity of intent. <laughs> you know, this is it. This is the, this is the slogan. So I, that's, I think that's the advice that I would pass on to anyone. Mm, amazing. And do you actually say that to yourself? Each time. I repeat it endlessly. I just often like <laughs> shout it into your face. Don't I? <laughs> and we've got a poster of it in the next room. But the funny thing is that Ian doesn't even remember saying it. It's like <laughs> he's become known as this guru with uh, all this fantastic um, advice to offer. And he's like, I don't even really remember. For him, it was just off the cuff because he's used to thinking about the intention of a performance. But, mm. yeah. yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um how does a lasting relationship with a producer and artist work in your favour when recording an album? Now, obviously, that applies to you both because you've got a lovely lasting relationship. I guess if the if the relationship, I mean, our relationship has given us a lot of material to draw, you know, loads of experiences and loads mm. of conversations that we can draw on. I mean, some of the, some of the ideas that we've had, I think, come from less from previous work that we've done I think once we've done the work we kind of done that but I think that in between doing those things the, we have lots of time together and we talk about things I mean some of the times that when we've been on tour and been walking Murphy that's when we came up with the idea of doing um, an album in one take wasn't mm. it we were going to get an orchestra and do mm. the well, whatever it was but you know we kind of so I think who's Murphy He's my dog. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes on tour with you? Yes, he does. Amazing. So you, that's a responsibility. You have to give him a walk all the time. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool because you you drive through the night and you arrive in some new place and like no matter where you are or what's gone on or how the gig was the night before, Murphy needs a walk. So mm. I wake up like usually, you know, really early and I, I set out from wherever I am to try and find somewhere amazing to walk Murph. And usually the bus will park, you know, the venues are in the middle of the city. So I've discovered amazing things about cities that I've visited by just going on four-hour walks in the morning, like really early doors. So I've discovered the canalways of Manchester or like in Norwich, there was this like um, 
national park kind of thing that I just mm. found. Just and and in Dublin, this huge park that's apparently one of the biggest parks in Europe. And you got to walk all across town to get to the park, and you just meet loads of people because you've got a dog with you. And, and then various different people from the band or the crew will come with me on one of these walks. Mm. We ended up going to like the like the cactus gardens of Barcelona, <laughs> all kinds yeah. of different places. Murphy has been everywhere. And like me and Damon on this incredible walk one morning in like Munich, I think, or yeah. we're in Germany somewhere. It was like autumn and we just discussed everything. It's one that, that was like, that was a really, really solid, like useful conversation about loads of things. And I think that is where loads of our ideas, they've mm. got that you can trace the roots back to these like moments that you share. But I think touring definitely does that when you're, more than more than being in here and working on the albums, it's the experiences we've had being on the road that like solidify the bond. I think. Mm. I suppose the other thing about working again with the studio stuff itself is that you you do gain confidence in you know the more out there ideas that we try. You know, even like today, just listening through those kind of weird mm. versions, think the more you do that, the more you know that there is a point to it. Mm. You know, I think if when we'd first met, we wouldn't have gone so far into the weirdness. To the piano. To the two days. I know, yeah. <laughs> We're like, God, oh, no, it's all uh, right. Yeah, it's going well. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's good that we can do that. It's good. That... Amazing. I mean, it's always a beginning whenever you make anything. So whether you're working with somebody that you've just met or somebody that you've known forever, it's that it always feels like a new beginning. But when that new beginning is built on loads of other new beginnings, that it just gives it a kind of depth. There's a kind of clarity to the harmonics or something, you know. It's like mm. when I come in this room and I sit down, I think I've probably been more more active creatively in this room than in any of the other rooms that I've written in, including my own. Do you know what I mean? Like, because mm. I know that the time spent in here is so important and is also limited that it's like, okay, I'm in, I'm in Dan's studio, and then it's just the paper just flies. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> It isn't really like that when I'm even when I'm in my own studio at home writing, I spend more time like not being able to get ideas sorted out. Mm. When you're in the studio, it's like ah, you just feel like where you've always dreamed to be. You know, it's like a dream. You know. When do you know when a track is finished? What do you think? I think you you kind of know because you do stop having an urge to fiddle with it. The ones that have evolved. You know, we've never put them away and thought, yeah, that's definitely done. Mm. We've always known that we'll come back. And then you, you, you reach a point where you think, I don't know, I just feel yeah, like, no, I just feel it's kind of fairly Because, like, for example, Martial Law, the first song that we played today, that came out of a, of a jam session and we pretty much knew that was it. That's how the song went. But, like, We Die or I Trap You, they went through their versions and we knew that we had to keep working on them. Just some part of us knew. Whereas martial law, you knew that yeah, that was how it, just, it went. Yeah. It was just like, that's it, that's finished, done. Mm. And then um, for for us anyway, once we've got the shape of the album, that helps us realise that the thing is finished because it's satisfying the shape that we hope that it will, you know. Mm. And until you've got a route through, then it's not finished. Yeah, we've got some questions from um, Take Notes listeners who've got in touch, some of which I think we've kind of covered in a way. Um uh, so Giles from Deptford, when recording, do you ever improvise the lyric or is it always pre-written? Hmm. I wonder if that's Giles from Deptford that I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it it completely depends on what, what it is that we're working on. So usually as I'm writing, Dan is writing, like as we've talked about, mm. 
and then I'll just read out what's on the paper. It's not like I bring lyrics that pre-exist into the studio because I think there's something that lives here that you know you need to you need to activate the lyric by writing it in the room where the music's being written. But it's not that I like freestyle the lyric. The, I used to freestyle a lot, and I believe that there is a muscle in the mind and the creative imagination that is exercised by freestyling that jazz musicians and other musicians that improvise have access to and, and you strengthen it and it gives you this incredible perspective. And I used to freestyle a lot when I was in my formative years as an MC. And I kind of, as I became a poet, that muscle became a bit more neglected because suddenly it was all very much about the words being exactly as I had chosen them to be and delivering them. And then also because I began to write these stories and within the, within the space of a story, there isn't really room for just freestyling and seeing where it leads you because you have to have person A get to location A, you know, whatever. So I kind of stopped doing that so much. And then, and I think once you stop freestyling, then what happens is when you go back into it, you've only got this kind of surface level available to you. When you get really into it and good at it, what happens is you delve right into this bank of experience that enables you to, in like real time, create a lyric that could well have been something that you've written down um, but the, it just happens it happens spontaneously and it feels completely different it feels like you're you're moving instinctively between um, kind of sets colours I can't really explain and then I used to get annoyed when I was younger and people would be like oh yeah that was wicked you freestyling because I'd be like well I made all the other lyrics up as well you know it's not like, it's like <laughs> everything else that I said was also something that I made up but people were generally more impressed by freestyle rhyming and then that kind of turned me off it because I, I just, I felt like it was a bit showboaty in my experience because and you'd always want to tell people, you'd get halfway through it and you'd be like, yeah, freestyling, you know, like off the top, you know. And then if I felt like if you had to qualify a lyric by saying, I've just made this up just now, like then it was probably better to just, to not have to qualify it that way. And if you felt secure enough to go into the studio and freestyle, you don't have to make a big point of it. Like that's just what you're up to. But all this to say that when I'm in here, I'm editing as I write, I'm scribbling stuff out, trying again, and then I get it to a point where I feel like I'm ready to say it out loud, and then I do it. Hmm. Sam from Stepney wants to know, how do you perform the instrumentals from Traps and Lessons live? So it's a different setup, isn't it, for this mm -hmm. record? Um, Dan's not with you now. No. On stage. He's a busy man. He's got other things to do. Yeah. Um, but you have somebody else who has been performing these, well, this album with you. Yeah, Claire Uchima. And she plays the setup that Dan, well, a kind of version of the setup that Dan mm. took to Shangri-La. So maybe it's Well, it's more, it's more contained. Everything's been reduced into one rather than there being like 10 different things. There's a piano and an Ableton file that has drum triggers for the various drum loops and then all of the string samples and the what I call the BAM samples, but I can't remember what they actually are. Um, they're all samples across one keyboard, and then there's a Prophet 6. That's it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah probably good to piano. say that um, Archie Marsh, who yeah. was the guitarist oh. in Sound of Rum, and is now our Ableton tech and, and monitor engineer. And he took the, the multi-track from the record and chopped it up into millions of parts and spread mm. it out across all so that it's playable. Yeah, right. Total genius. That sounds like a big task. Yeah, and I think he's done things that even have surprised Ableton, which yeah. is like definitely worth shouting him out. 
it's probably also worth saying that on previous tours, we've gone out with drums, synths. Like I was saying at the beginning, we had two drummers, singer, you know, everything. And we felt like for this album, actually more in keeping with the Rick Rubin philosophy of stripping away and trying to get closer to the lyric and pushing the lyric out front. Because what we're trying to do is create an environment for this lyric to just kind of soar mm. and connect. And um, how Claire triggers things, it's, it's she's just fantastic. She's so kind of still and poised and in it and ready and equipped to like score this lyric, basically. It's, it's, that is, that's what it feels like it's happening when we're live. Yeah, yeah, like a live scoring yeah. to the film of your yeah. words. Yeah, that's how someone described it, was the like a film and the accompanist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah interesting. Um, Junior from Melbourne. Uh, do you demo anything yourself at Kate? Um, do you do you demo anything yourself, Kate, at home? Oh, is um, what he's getting at. Not really. No. Like, I mean, I come in when I'm in here. I'm working on the albums with Dan, and when I'm not in here, I'm usually working on all the other things I've got to work on. So, yeah. what I did is once we've got the once Let the Meet Chaos was coming together and it had shape, I took all the lyrics and set them all out as a long form poem and edited them in the manuscript as if it was a poem, using the experience I'd had working with Don Patterson, who is my poetry editor, who helped me to edit my poetry manuscript for Hold Your Own, the collection, not Hold Your Own, the poem. And so like, I I was really interested in editing the lyrics like separately, you know, that, and that's where Picture of Vacuum came out of that process. But it wasn't like me making demos on like a four track or something. It was just me basically setting the lyrics out as poetry and like examining the words like that because when you're in the studio this is the thing that's sort of an amazing thing about this this process of traps and lessons this is the first time where i i don't think i've included a line that i i'm not actually that if i actually looked at it and said what is that lyric for in previous albums the flow was so exciting to me that i would let the meaning sometimes come second and that's even for an artist like me who cares so much about the meaning of words you still get so carried away by the musicality of the language that you'll just let a kind of sloppy line go because it sounds cool. Mm. And trying to set the lyrics out as poetry was me trying to get to the bottom of that. Like, is that word really necessary? Should it be there? Is it moving the story onwards? But there was just a part of me that just couldn't let go of something that sounded cool. But now on this new album, because the lyric was pushed so far to the front, it took a whole different set of like value uh, gauges you know like Rick was not interested in whether it sounded cool or if the flow was dynamic or you know I'm not even locking in with Dan so there's no there's no it's part no of flow me in some ways, I can't yeah. be like oh but I love that bit when we go yeah. before I was an adult I was a little wreck <laughs> it just doesn't it doesn't happen so um, to answer the question no I'm, I'm not really demoing at home but occasionally I'll, I'll like write the lyrics out and work on them in a manuscript yeah uh, Rock to, and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to Dan, um, Elliot from Bristol wants to know, did your approach to tracking Kate's vocal on the book of Traps and Lessons differ from the previous albums? Yeah, well, because we did it in Shangri-La, we had uh, this amazing array of mics to choose from. Mm. So what we did is we set them all up on the first day and we had a, a U47, U67... I assume this person they is into want, mics. <laughs> they must want this detail. An SM7, an 87, a Brauner VM1, a Telefunken. And Kate did the same, I don't know, eight bars 
on each one and then we just played them back and it was immediately obvious which one it was the u67 and it was quite funny <laughs> my natural thing when something like that happens is like oh you better get one of them <laughs> <laughs> look on ebay it's like 19 grand <laughs> <laughs> wow um Amazing. It's interesting that it was immediately obvious. It was so it was obvious, so, obvious. so <laughs> clearly. And it was amazing because the, with, we brought my VM1, which in my scheme of things, that has the same, you know, that sticks out as being, but that was just no, it was just, it didn't come close to this thing. It's, what qualities did this microphone have then? It had really, without having a resonant low end, it had a really kind of punchy, bass to it but it didn't sound like it had been eq'd it just sounded strong and it had a slight distortion at the top kind of graininess to it and it's just it sounded kind of raw mm. 19 grand yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like handmade in like west berlin in valve mic from like 19 67 wow amazing um <laughs> Khalid from boston wants to know Dan if you mixed the album yourself yeah you did it was quite a complicated process because we brought the vocals back in sync with the instrumental track that I'd played you know where the say I was playing the samples that had been recorded here mixed down into stereo put in the sampler played in time with Kate there then brought back and then synced up back with their original thing so that we could have a bit of control over the levels but in the end I think we didn't really we kind of just used it pretty much as it came out of the thing there so there wasn't there wasn't a great deal of mixing you know there was the vocal again there's not many things going on but I think we opened up some of the drum parts and got them back down to the individual bits but yeah we've mixed it here mm. it's been amazing the mixing was I can I just say yeah. the funny thing about the mixing because all the way through all of the demos <laughs> that we that we made um, everything we ever did, really. But, but back at the first time at Shangri-La, when we were with Rick, however we had balanced it, he would just say, turn the vocals up a lot. <laughs> turn the vocals up, up, up. <laughs> Until it was kind of... And I think, you know, because he was really trying to get inside the lyric and trying to understand what it was about the flow that he wanted to hear while we were developing the whole thing. So Kate and I had this thing... But he really likes the vocals loud, doesn't he? Um, and in the studio while we're recording, everyone can set their own monitor mix, and we kind of listen to his one. And they were like, "Wow, this is bizarre." Um, and uh, Sean Oakley, who was our engineer there, was like, "Yeah, he likes the vocals really loud." And so when we were mixing it, we we kind of wanted to have some music, you know. <laughs> and so. It was a funny process, but in the end, we we got to a point where we were all happy with it, and well, we didn't trick him, but we kind of we sent the mix off, and you know we got the balance, but it was just that we, I got an email from him one day saying, "Oh, it's beautiful, love it, love it, love it." Just one thing, you just put music up a bit, <laughs> and, because we we mixed a version of the album with the vocals. We mixed the album how we wanted it, then we turned the vocals up. We were like sure that even he would want more music. So basically, but we, what we did was we, we did it so that the instruction would come from him, you know, like, <laughs> turn the music up. And then we could put the music where we wanted it to be. But we, it was like, it was this victorious moment when we were like, oh, you know, we, we just want, we just want to be able to hear all those, all the parts. 
But then when he came back and said like, that he loved it, and <laughs> the music up, we were like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Does he know? <laughs> he <laughs> he used the strategy. <laughs> Fantastic. That's so good. Um, it has been so amazing being able to come here and go through the journey, the journey of Kate and Dan mm. um, over this time. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for um, allowing us into your world and sharing those really quite private moments. (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) You might have had second thoughts or might even still have second thoughts about, um, and I hope you don't. Um, But thank you, uh, because it was absolutely fascinating to be able to hear those moments. Yeah, for sure. Crucial, really crucial. Um, And we're going to leave with... um, I thought we'd end with people's faces or a little blast of people's faces because it is the the concluding part of the book of Traps and Lessons, the future universal anthem (laughs) (laughs) when it gets released as a single. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And, And here it is. This is Kate Tempest with People's Faces. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. It's hard. We got our heads down and our hackles up, our backs against the wall. I can feel you aching. None of this was written in stone. There is nothing we're forbidden to know. And I can feel things changing. Even when I'm weak and I'm breaking, I stand weeping at the train station. Cause I can see your faces There is so much peace to be found In people's faces